0: Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now, your hosts, Jason and Peely. Hi, everybody, and welcome again to the REI Foundation Podcast with Jason Peely. Today, we welcome Paul Moore. Welcome, Paul.
1: Hey, glad to be here. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Paul, for being on honest with the show this morning. And we always love to just get a quick intro to uh, who
2: you are and uh, where you're currently residing from. All right. So um, I made a mistake and got a petroleum engineering degree. I didn't know what I was doing at 18. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. And then I went (laughs) (laughs) I went went on and got an MBA from The Ohio State University. I went to Ford Motor Company for about five years in Detroit but I had an entrepreneurial fire. So I quit that uh, wonderful job and started a staffing firm with a partner of mine. We uh, ran that for about five years. I was finalist for entrepreneur of the year in Michigan for a couple years straight. We sold that company to a publicly traded firm in 97. Uh, We moved to uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. We were kind of reacting against living right by the city of Detroit. And we um, moved way out on top of a mountain in the Blue Ridge Mountains on 120 acres. And uh, uh, we had four kids. We've been married a little over 30 years. And we're still in the Blue Ridge Mountains, but we're closer to town now. I've been doing real estate uh, sales and development and all types of investing for the last 17 years. And boy, has it been an education, one I would not want to repeat.
0: Wow. So, how did you how did you initially get started in real estate?
2: So, a friend of mine and I uh, decided that we we never heard the term house flipping in the year 2000. <clears throat> I don't think it was even a thing yet. <clears throat> but um, we decided we wanted to buy a house to fix up. So, we went to the courthouse steps on December 20th, 2000, on an icy day. We were the only people who showed up here, and they they put a house out that was. Worth easily sixty five thousand. We looked in the windows; it looked like it, you know, just needed a little cleanup and paint. And uh, they put it out at thirty two thousand, I think. So we bought it, and we sold it the first day on the market for I think sixty four thousand dollars. Wow. And wow. we thought, wow, we made a twenty four thousand dollar profit at the end of the day here after holding costs and everything. And um, this will be easy. Let's do two of these a week. <laughs> yeah, and, right, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know that didn't uh, ever pan out. We lost money on our next two deals through overconfidence. Uh,
0: of course, of course. So I guess just to go on on that trail, how do you how do you talk to uh, people just starting out in this business about you know getting into their first deal and about overconfidence or lack thereof?
1: Well, I guess kudos for you for for taking that action and just getting into it. Yeah. But on that same part, you, you, it took you a minute after that to figure out that you know. It doesn't always just hail
2: cash. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, we did have to take action. We had to be bold enough. Um, we actually, a little funny nuance to that first story, we actually did not take a cashier's check along with us because we were so committed to not bidding. We just wanted to see what the process was like. And we told the auctioneer, since we were the only people there, we, we knew you know, there's no way she's going to let us go get a cashier's check in on this icy day and come back and meet her again in half an hour. But she actually did. She said, I, I'm actually hungry. She said, I'm going to lunch. And I might just be back by here in half an hour. So it was great. Um, nice. Yeah, you know, I don't overestimate, don't underestimate the cost of repairs would be my advice to me as a home flipper in 2000, but also in 2014, 14 years later, still made mistakes like that. Still lost money on a deal. Um, you, you know, I, I did this with my son. I've done it with friends. Uh, you know, people bring me this amazing house deal, and it's so easy to think it's worth 140,000 fixed up. I can buy it for a hundred. Um, there's so little to do. And I can almost tell you that just what right, I just said just now, it's probably not going to be profitable at that level. And you think, how could it not be? It only needs these few things. Well, yeah. Wait till the sewer. You find out the sewer line is broken, and you need to invest an extra three thousand. Or wait till you fail some inspection, and wait till you know you get the list of. Uh, fixes you want from the buyer and pay the real estate commission, and you know the rest. So, I like for a home flipper, I like to see you know, maybe purchasing the property for about 65 or no more than 70% of the final value, less the repairs. So, in other words, if it's a hundred thousand dollar final value, I wouldn't want to pay over 70,000 for it, less repairs. So, if I think the repairs are going to be 10,000 it be 70 minus 10 or 60,000. One thing I did learn along the way is the incredible importance of home staging and everybody who's watched HGTV knows this but I can tell you in real practical powerful ways we were able to get literally up to $50,000 per house more when we staged homes and we sold them faster. That's uh, great. It's very true. It's yeah. very, very true. We actually Across have a
1: home coming up that uh, it's all switch lights in all the bedrooms. So there's actually there's actually you have to plug in lights for all the bedrooms, and we're, we have to stage
0: it. Yeah, there's no and way it, we're not. There, going Yeah,
1: there's to. no way we're not going <laughs> to stage it because it's just in a desirable area, great schools. It's a higher price point area, and it's just expected. So yeah, that's a great right. for listeners. So yeah. give us some steps along the way. I mean, did you? How did you? basically learn what to do. Did you have mentors along the way? Were you reading books? Where, where did you gain this knowledge along with the, just the confidence you guys already had coming into it just to get out there and do it?
2: Well, we had a few mentors along the way, but I mean, um, I should have mentioned in in my bio at the beginning, what I'm doing now, I didn't mention that. Um, I'm actually, uh, I've written a couple books on real estate investing, including, including one called the perfect investment. Kind of an arrogant title, huh? huh no, great. It's great. Uh,
0: it's a perfect title.
2: Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and it's a book about uh, apartment investing. So we're apartment syndicators now. Uh, I, was, uh, I had done a subdivision. I had flipped high-end waterfront lots, flipped about 60 homes over the years. And uh, at some point, uh, we got into multifamily. And um, so we built a multifamily from the ground up in uh, North Dakota. Operated that for a number of years. It was incredibly profitable. Sold it at the perfect time in August of 2013, when oil prices were still $90 a barrel, I believe. And uh, then um, decided I really wanted to get into multifamily more, but I didn't want to do the ground-up development. Realized how risky that really had been. And so we actually went and got a wonderful mentor and um, in multifamily. And uh, we still confer with them today, but we are now in a place where we're syndicating and, uh, you know, acquiring uh, commercial grade apartment buildings. That would be, I would consider commercial grade 80 units or up, more or less where you can have an on-site property management team.
1: So with all the different avenues and channels of real estate that you've been in, what, what is it that multifamily is the, basically the form that you feel is,
2: is the best value for you and for your company? Uh, How much time do we have? Um, (laughs) Give us your top five points. Okay, great. So um, number one, I was looking for something that would have demographic trends underlying it and would have an evergreen nature to it. And something that I could look out 10, 20, 30 years or more and predict the likelihood of its success. And um, multifamily has those trends. Uh, You probably know this. Um, in 1995, the government decided everybody should own a home. And uh, so they passed laws. You may remember the mortgage mortgage deals that were prevalent from 95 to 2005. You know, if you could fog a mirror, you could get a loan. Uh, I know a guy who had about a 40 or $50,000 income. He owned, a, I don't know, I think it was $150,000 home. And he bought a $600,000 McMansion as his second home. And all he had to do was sign the papers to get that, Sounds needless right. to say, the <laughs> bank got it back pretty quick, <clears throat> yeah. so the government passed these rules in ninety five and home ownership shot up from sixty four percent to sixty nine point two percent and then in two thousand and five um, as they say, uh, the chickens came home to roost, and people stopped making mortgage payments, they lost their jobs they, their income went down, and home ownership plummeted from uh, 69.2% to about 63% over the next decade. And <clears throat> people think, well, that's just a temporary thing. Well, not really, because that is about the normal home ownership rate in the United States over the last 50 years. Uh, it would be in the low to mid-60s. So homeownerships uh dropped. In addition to that, though, there are three things that are underlying that gonna be that continuance of that. Number one, Baby boomers, people born between 1946 and 64, that includes me, um, are increasing, um, increasingly leaving their homes and renting. Um, this is the fastest growing uh, group of renters in the United States. It's still the smallest, but it is the fastest growing. And the statistics say that when baby boomers rent, they usually never go back to owning a home again. A second demographic trend is millennials. Millennials, on average, uh, have a very high student debt load. Uh, they have a high credit card debt, and they don't have a huge propensity to save. Statistically, I'm sure you're different, but um, <laughs> the um, uh, millennials, on average, don't see the point. They they you know they heard the same things uh, baby boomers did, which is your home is your greatest investment. But the truth is, they don't believe that because they've seen. Their parents, their friends, their uncles lose their homes in the Great Recession, and they've realized that home values don't always go up. And so, and they also feel often, why should I tie myself down to a 30-year contract on a seemingly overpriced house, which will lock me into one location for years or decades when I might want to move next month? I might want to move across town for better friends, a different job. I might want to move to the West Coast. And so millennials, um, on average, 54% of them are uh, actually renting. And actually, uh, first-time home buyers uh, typically in the in the past, it's been about a 65-35 ratio uh, when people move into their first home. I should say they're owning. Now it's flipped. It's more like 25% of them are owning, and 75% are actually renting their first home. That's incredible. the third. Uh, Trend underlying this is immigration. Immigration continues to play an increasing role in the U.S. economy and demographics. And um, immigrants, on average, rent more than owning. So I was looking at these demographic trends, and I was also smarting from losing money. I have a podcast called How to Lose Money and um I, yeah so we talked with uh, entrepreneurs and investors about mistakes they've made and every really successful entrepreneur or investor that I've spoken to has made big mistakes and I had too. and so I was smarting from that I didn't want to do any more ground up development I didn't want to do any more risk taking I didn't want to gamble with my money and I sure didn't want to with my investors money so that's why I decided to get into class b value add syndicated uh, apartment real estate. That's a long answer, but there you go. No, it's That's great. great. So so much information. Y-
1: you're basically focusing on class B. Why not C?
2: Why not A? Mm-hmm. So we just really think that, uh, I mean, C is, as, as long as something like we would buy a C property, if it could be upgraded to at least a B minus property and it was in a B or B plus or better location. Uh, but generally, we find that the class B apartments, especially those built in the 70s and 80s when there was a lot built, um, are a great fit for doing value add, for increasing the rents, for increasing the, uh, the quality of the tenant base, uh, whereas, um, it, which gives us uh, returns in the forms of, number one, uh, cash yield, number two, appreciation, and of course, principal pay down. A C property or especially a lower C property often provide a better cash yield, maybe 15% a year instead of eight, but there's very little, if any, appreciation because no matter what you do to a C property, in some cases, uh, you're not the, the tenants are only going to be able to afford a certain amount. So even if you went in and put granite countertops and hardwood flooring and everything else, that tenant, because of the area that the property's in, And because of the surrounding community, they're still going to say, look, I can only afford $500 a month. So that's why I don't want to do a C. An A, in a similar way, uh, but different, um, you have to um, often pay top dollar for that property and the appreciation uh, ability opportunities are limited. And the value add opportunities are very limited as well for an A property in many cases. So we really like B, B minus B.
1: That's great. Nice. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great point. Just like house flipping, you can only improve to what the area will warrant. So if right. you, you know, if you have all from like a countertops throughout the neighborhood and you're putting in marble, you're probably not going to get that return. It's the same thing for mm. apartments and you can just, you can upgrade, you want to make great units, but you're just going to upgrade to what the market can allow and what they can afford. Right. So for your apartment investing, you've chosen the route of syndication. Maybe you can just give a quick overview about what syndication is from a high
2: level and why you're choosing to go this direction. Okay, so syndication would be pulling together a lot of investors' funds into one large group and then going in as a group and purchasing a property. One of the reasons I like syndication is uh, that it gives us as a syndicator access to a lot more funds, of course. But for the, for the uh, investor, it's a great benefit because the investors are actually co-owners of the property. And as co-owners, they get ridiculous tax benefits. In fact, a friend of mine who's a syndicator on the West Coast said, if the American public knew how little tax we pay as real estate investors, commercial real estate investors specifically, there'd be another tax revolt. And so leave. I'm
0: going to delete everything you just said right there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's no. fine.
2: I got it. I understand. No tax so, revolts. Yep. No tax revolts. That's right. So, but there are, I won't go into them now, but there are at least 10 great tax saving strategies that commercial multifamily investors use. I've written about this on bigger pockets recently. Give us your favorite one accelerated depreciation through cost segregation. Yeah, great. Yeah. Should we talk about that? Yeah, Yeah. a little bit. Sure. It'd be great. Okay. So typically when a commercial building is um, depreciated, it's on on a straight line. The default, I should say, is a straight line 27 and a half year or 39 year straight line depreciation. But uh, there are all kinds of elements in the building like carpet, appliances, countertops, even the wiring. And the light switches and the lights and um, the outside, the pavement, the parking lot stripes, the landscaping, and a hundred other things, doors, windows, those things can be depreciated on a three, uh, excuse me, a five, seven, or 15-year basis. By doing a a tax, excuse me, a cost segregation study, you can actually accelerate the depreciation on all those items, which is, you know, sometimes 25, 30% of the cost of a building. You can accelerate into those five or seven or fifteen-year buckets instead of the longer term twenty-seven and a half or thirty-nine, and therefore, uh, syndication investors often—I'm not a tax planner, nor do I play one on TV—but often mm-hmm. they find that they are able to get a cash yield on of say five, six, seven, eight, ten percent, but they get a negative number on their K one on their taxes year in and year out for about let's say five years or more. And so it's really a great tax planning, tax saving strategy and it's real.
1: That's awesome. Yep. Nice. We love it. We've done it with our property and uh, it's something that just through listening and through learning, you, you find all these different advantages to multifamilies and, they, and I'm continually yeah. surprised about new opportunities you can put together with multifamily investing.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: So um, what significant impact is your business dealing with right now? What do, you think, um, what do you think you're working on currently?
2: So I think one of the greatest challenges right now in the multifamily world, and that's for everybody, is finding a deal that makes sense. And um, so we've experienced a very, very long dry spell. Uh, and and the reason is we're all in our fifties. We've made mistakes in the past. We've had to tell our families or our investors, sorry, a few times, not many, but those few times were so painful. We don't want to do it again. So we're being super conservative. We're not willing to overpay for an asset. And so, uh, that means we're being outbid regularly by people who are willing to overpay. And it's just not going to be us. So that's the biggest challenge we're having right now is finding assets that make sense for us and our investors.
1: Is there certain parameters you'd like to fall in uh, when you're looking at an investment? It just initial point, is there an actual cap, buy-in cap or an actual cash on cash you're looking to have from day one going into the property that, that makes this an investment you're going to look further into?
2: Yeah. So we want to be able to operate the property in the first year at at least a six or six and a half percent cap rate. So that would be a six or six and a half percent return on investment before the debt. That gives the investors typically at least a five percent return on year one. Um, There's all kinds of math involved in that. It's not as simple as I made it sound. But um, so we like that. Now, if the property is currently at, say, four percent cap we used to eliminate those right away, but not anymore because we realized, for example, on the property we're acquiring right now, we were able to go and study the water bills, the water and sewer. It's not something you'd necessarily do up front on some properties, but we did. And we found out that they were spending about 110% more than they should have on their water and sewer, about 60000 a year. So we figured out where the problems were, in part, and we believe by submetering all the units and submetering um, the common areas at this property, we're going to be able to isolate the leaks. When we isolate the leaks, we're going to be able to save that, and we're going to be passing these greatly reduced water bills on to our tenants. We're already paying a flat rate anyway. That's amazing. So we're going to be able to almost immediately improve the cap rate on this property up into even better than where we were hoping, you know, we would want as a minimum. That's great. And in terms of per unit costs, is there a per unit cost for submarine that you're looking at right now? No. Um, we, we generally just look at the uh, net operating income, uh, the cap rate in the market. Um, we, you know, there are $50,000 units that would not work for us. And there's $100,000 units that
1: would work. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe I, I'll rephrase that question. So in terms of submetering the units for water.
2: I'm sorry. Yeah. And no, what is it costing you per unit to do this? Uh, our bid on that is $480 per unit to submeter. That's Amazing. a little on the high side. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're actually gonna go ahead and put in programmable thermostats, uh, which actually work together with the um, sub-metering. And that's another $60 per unit. So for about 540 a unit, uh, we're, we plan to spend 70 or 75,000 on this uh, this property. We expect to get a $60,000 water savings the first year and then more in the future because of some other nuances with the uh, thermostats. So the return on investment of that value add, if you want to call it a value add, um, is about 80%, 80, 85% in year one, right? So, And that's why I love Class B, because if you can make a meaningful improvement that drives an increased ROI on a small window or a number of small windows of your property, then you can take the blended average ROI on the property as a whole and drive it up. And so by making a number of changes like the submetering, there, we expect the ROI to go up from where it is now in the say 5% range up to closer to an eight or 9% range in just a few years. Yeah, it's incredible. Nice.
0: And that's just from doing your homework.
2: Yeah. It's looking a, further
0: into the property. So
2: many times
1: people search just for the revenue generators, but one of the biggest proponents is to find the elements of of expenses that are not being efficiently managed. And uh, that's great. So it's huge. In, in regards to the water savings approach there, was this an owner's paid property and now you're going to be billing back, the the tenants will be paying each of these, or was this currently that it was being billed back to the tenants?
2: So right now the owners are paying all the bills, uh, not electricity, but the water sewer, um, pests, and um, trash. But they're charging the tenants a $59 flat fee. And so the tenants are already making a payment. What we would plan to do would be to, over about two years, pass those individual costs onto the tenants, but hope that actually the total cost won't be that much more than 59 honestly. That's great. And
1: yeah. I, I guess the genesis of my question is how did you come to the conclusion that this tenant base or this tenant class was able to handle this or this was something that was going to work for your property?
2: A whole lot of market study. There you go. Yeah. yeah. We, uh, all the competitors charge back water, sewer, gas, yeah. pests, et cetera. And so, um, and number two, we realize also that our rents are slightly below maybe even somewhat below what they could be if the property was being run really well and if all the deferred maintenance and things that are just a little shabby on the property were taken care of. So um, we are able to, between those two things, come to the conclusion that this was very doable.
1: Yeah. That's an amazing point it's, you just have to know what your market will warrant, what your competitors are doing. And that's going right. to basically predicate you. If someone else, if the, the entire rest of the market is allowing pets and getting pet fees and every other point from there, and you're not allowing pets, well, you're missing out on a revenue generator just right. for day one. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. That,
2: and that's another one for this property. In fact, yeah.
0: Wow. That's so much information. Like, And all the information that you've garnered over the years of doing real estate, what would you say to somebody that wanted to just get into multifamily? I mean, some of our newer, um, I guess, newbie investors are listening to this podcast are like, well, how do I, how would I work my way into like syndication? How, how does that happen?
2: There are probably about four ways to get in. Number one would be, uh, like a guy I met in Dallas in 1993, he took a thousand dollars. He bought a duplex. He fixed it up and he sold it and he bought a fourplex. Then he fixed it up and sold it and he bought a 12plex. And now when I met him, he was selling 132 units for, I think it was $11 million. And uh, he had, now he worked really, really hard over the years. But over 20, what would that be? 22 years, I think at the time, he had worked his way up to a you know very, very large You know, nice property. Now, that's one way, and I think that's really, really hard, and it takes a long time. (laughs) But it is doable. A second way is real hard too, right now, and that's to be a deal finder. Go out and develop relationships with brokers or develop relationships with owners in a certain market. Find off market deals where you get an owner who might say, Yeah, I would sell for the right price. And then you go to a syndicator and say, hey, I've got an off-market deal if you're interested. And then you sign a deal with a syndicator where you get a piece of ownership for bringing the deal to the table. That's a second way. A third way is a little easier, and that is being a capital finder or a capital development, independent capital development person. That would be pulling together uh, a lot of, through education, through relationships, through webinars, uh, podcasts, through pulling together a lot of investors and then offering that investment, uh, that group of investors to a syndicator and say, hey, I've got this, these 10 investors who want to invest 50000 each. If I brought those to you, would you let me be part of your next deal? Let me be a minority owner, but also shadow you and learn the whole process and then put your name on it as a co-owner. And so that's a that's a realistic way to get into this yeah. business. And then, of course, a fourth way, would be to be an investor in a syndication and ask the company, hey, if I invest $100,000 or whatever, would you let me shadow you? Would you let me go out on due diligence? Would you let me go learn? And a lot of syndicators would say yes. So those are the four ways in. Of course, there's another way, and that is to have a whole lot of money and just do it yourself.
1: <laughs> That's right. So, So if you are looking to basically put your toe in the water and and invest in the syndication.
2: What is something that you would look for within a sponsor? So you can go to, uh, you can go online and read about crowdfunding companies and these crowdfunding sites, you know, um, apparently vet the sponsors pretty well i've heard some really good stories about that people that are doing really well i've heard a few that weren't so positive recently so i think it's good to vet the crowdfunding company and the sponsor as far as the sponsor you're going to want to ask for references you're going to want to check them out on google you're going to want to do a criminal background check you're going to want to check with the sec uh you're going to check with the um uh, the uh, attorney general's office in a variety of states. I was actually trying to invest once in a deal, and found out a huge red flag where Pennsylvania had barred this guy from ever operating there again because of his illegal practices. Oh wow! And um, anyway, um, but you going to look for all that. Look, you know, ask for criminal. You know, check their criminal background. Um, just ask a lot of questions and and follow your gut too. If your mind is telling you that you really want this 25% annual return, but your heart, your gut, or you know that supernatural part inside of you is telling you something's wrong, don't ignore that. Oh, and guys, don't ignore your wives. That's right. (laughs) I know that.
1: I know that one right there. So, but it's so true. You can have a, you can have a great syndicator make a nominal deal. Amazing. And you can have a just marginal average quote unquote, not, not highly um, involved syndicator make a great deal poor. So it it is very important about the person there about what they're going to do. You've, you've had such a a full spectrum of real estate. If you've had your ups and downs and, and for people that, that are on this journey, what is, what is a point that you could point out to people that you would think is a, is a great learning lesson you've had to help people, uh,
2: I guess surpass the curve. Mm-hmm. You know, this applies to a lot of things in life. I, in, in my personal life, I am all about swinging for the fences. I love to really invest in my family. I love to invest in relationships. I talk very loudly to strangers. Um, I, I like. I, I really want to care about people. But as far as investing, I don't want to swing for the fences anymore. Um, I used to believe in the double or nothing thing. Hey, let's double our money in a year. And Uh, you know, you do that long enough. And, you you know, the problem with that is the law of risk and return is commonly believed low risk, low return, high risk, high return. We want to believe that because as entrepreneurs and investors, we're often optimists. The truth is it's low risk, low return, high risk, high potential return. And that also means high potential loss. Yeah, And so Uh, I think swinging for the fences has probably been the worst thing I did in my earlier years that I have corrected. And now I really want to be much more um, careful with my investing. Paul Samuelson was the first uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics from the US. And he said, investing should be much like watching grass grow or watching paint dry. If you really want excitement, take $800 and go to Vegas. That's great. Yeah, that's right. So
1: you've spoken about just a lot of what you're doing. What, what is the why? What, what is your why behind all of this?
2: Yeah. So I have uh, a number of whys, but um, that would include my family, uh, my friends. I'm sorry, guys. Are you seeing me still? Okay. Yep. Great. Yes. My screen just blimped. Is that a word? um, <laughs> but, um my, my big why I want to talk about would be um, I want to thwart human trafficking, and I want to rescue its victims. If I was alive in the 1840s or 50s, I want to believe, and I do believe, that I would have taken action to, uh, to really oppose slavery. If I would have been an adult in the 50s and 60s in America, I would have done everything I could to oppose the uh, civil injustice that was happening in America, but it's happening again right now. I don't know if you know this, but if you took the record profits of Nike, General Motors, Starbucks, and Apple, the record year profits, combine them into together and double that number, that's the approximate annual revenue from human trafficking worldwide. Wow. It is huge. It's modern-day slavery, and it's got to stop. So we are investing my family and my company are investing a significant part of our profits into thwarting human trafficking and also to go to that extra mile to rescue its victims. We uh, are aware of some nonprofit organizations, some uh, ministries out in Kansas city, for example, who are doing an amazing job uh, rescuing uh, women and bringing them healing and health. And, um, it's just something that I'm really passionate about.
0: Do you have a few organizations or groups that you'd like to highlight? <clears throat>
2: yeah, one is called Exodus Cry, and they made an amazing documentary. It's very troubling, actually, called Nefarious, or you could say Nefarious. And um, I highly recommend their film. I think it might be on Netflix, but uh, it's well worth watching it. It completely opened my eyes to this whole area of human trafficking. Uh, another is called Harvest Home, and that is a group out of Kansas City. They have about a 300-acre farm. They have 11 homes on it where they bring in uh, ladies, kids, uh, occasional guys from other parts of the country who were trafficked, and they bring them healing, hope, and a new life. And uh, mm-hmm. they're building a, a large facility to house a lot more people right now. So that's I cool. really believe in both of those, and there's others as well.
0: well that is Thank incredible. You. I mean, that's that's why we get into this. I mean, how else, but uh, to help?
1: Yeah, that's amazing. You think about freedom of time and freedom of your own. But uh, thank you for that. That's great. Yeah, you bet. So, going forward with with where you're at today, do you have do you have a two or five year plan out there for your multifamily strategy?
2: yeah the problem is it's it's partly de- uh, depending on the market. I mean if it continues to tighten the way it has, which I don't think anybody thinks it will, but it could happen. If it continues the way it is, um, we will be very continue to buy very, very sparingly. Uh, if it drops into a free fall, which I don't think anybody thinks it will either, uh, we would probably sit back and wait a little bit and start picking up deeply discounted assets from banks later. However, if it does what we expect, which would be to, to contract a little bit um, and uh, get to the point where sellers can admit that they missed the top of the market, but they still want to sell. Uh, we'll be sparingly you know, looking for, to acquire about two to three, at most four assets per year in selected markets. That's
1: great. That's great. What, what, what makes a market stand out for you?
2: We have a 24-point litmus test for markets, and we go through those. It it would include net population migration being positive into the market. It would include a diverse uh, job base, uh, a growing job base, low unemployment, uh, not tied to one industry like Detroit was, Um, new apartments being built, but not too many so that it's overbuilt. all kinds of uh, variables like that is what we're looking for. That's great. Thank you. Thank sure. you.
0: Well, what steps would you give somebody new to real estate that some actionable steps that they can take today before the end of the day mm. right now?
2: Uh, you know, get educated. Um, I didn't mention that. I guess this is a fifth way to get into syndication. And that would be to find a good mentor. Um, there are all kinds of good mentors out there. I don't know if you all do that. Uh, but, uh, find somebody who's willing to bring you along, train you and, you know, spin you off into doing your own deals. And so, um, I highly believe in that. I know of a, an online video mentoring program that's as inexpensive as a thousand dollars. Uh, I also know of other ones that are as high as $25,000, but, uh, I'd highly recommend that you, if you're serious about real estate, uh, get some sort of training and mentoring.
1: That's great, thank you. And you have, you have a book out on apartment investing, correct?
2: Yeah, I do. What's the name of the book? It's The Perfect Investment. We said. Create multi-generational wealth from the uh, shift to multifamily housing. Love and
0: it. we'll have a link to that book and how you can uh, pick it up in our show notes. Um, I guess before we, uh, before we leave you, that we have a couple, two more questions. What are some words that you live by?
2: Oh, that's a tough one. Um, You know, I already mentioned this. Don't swing for the fences. And um, um, I really have a very, um, I I have a, my faith is my most important thing in my life. So I I live, you know, I I really try to live and and base my life around what, you know, uh, the Bible and God's, everything that God would teach would be, you know, what I would really want to live by and what I do try to live by.
0: Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Yeah. And then the last thing is, what's the best way to find you? If, uh, if somebody wants to, you know, know more about your book or know more about you, or maybe, uh, kind of hit you up for mentorship.
2: <laughs> oh, right. Well, we don't actually have an official mentoring program, but mm-hmm. we love to talk to investors and real estate newbies. Um, I, um, I think they can just find me at my website, wellingscapital.com. That's W E L L I N G S capital.com. Uh, or they can reach out to me uh, via uh, my email, paul at wellingscapital.com.
0: And then Paul also mentioned that he's on Bigger Pockets and he writes for them uh, pretty yeah. regularly.
1: Yeah, perfect. Oh,
0: perfect. So, Bigger Pockets yeah. also.
1: Yeah. Paul, thank you so much for today. I learned a ton. That was a ton of value. So, and we we love apartment syndication. So this has been a great show and I'm sure listeners are going to get a ton of value out of it.
0: Yeah. Thank
2: you so much, Paul. Thank you. It's great to be here and I'm really honored to be on your show. Thank you. Thank
0: Thank you you so much. So this is the REI Foundation podcast with Jason and Peely. Thank you again to Paul Moore and thank you everybody for listening. So grateful. Have a good day. Bye now.